0: So should we just, um, just have a moment of, of quiet for a second before we start looking at this? Father God, we've thought about terrible situations in the world. We've thought about the terrible things that people do to other people. And we've thought about the consequences of holding on to That pain and that anger and that hate. Father, as we think now of the encounters of Isaiah, Peter, Andrew, James and John. We think of their encounters with you. May our thoughts and our hearts be open. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, two very different um, accounts of meeting with God, and what I'd like to do this morning is to focus on the disciples and their encounter with Jesus, but draw in um, some of the elements from uh, Isaiah's encounter with God as well. So, maybe let's have a look at the, uh, the context first, if we can have the first slide. Um, <clears throat> uh, Matthew's account sounds very abrupt. Jesus met the disciples. He said, Come on, they got out of the boat, they abandoned their father, they left their businesses behind, they left their wives, their children, everything else, wandered into the desert. And that sounds uh, quite brutal, really. I think if you engage with that emotionally for a moment, uh, certainly as a father, if my son was working in my business and I had this wonderful vision for him going on into the future, and there he is getting on with it, doing the nets, it's all good, and some prophet bloke wanders up the beach and just takes him out of the boat and they disappear, I would be traumatised. Um, now, fortunately, if we read the rest of the Gospels, we find that Matthew is really just sort of cutting to the chase and giving us the Twitter version um, of, a, of a much longer story, um, If you read the Gospel of John, you can see that there's actually quite a period of interaction. You may remember from John's Gospel, we have John the Baptist, hairy guy, hairy shirt, eating locusts and honey, real proper prophet. And Andrew, and probably Peter, and quite possibly James and John as well, quite a few people are following John the Baptist and they're going out into the desert to hear him preach. He's the current sort of exciting sensation. And then you may remember that at one point Jesus sort of passes by. John has baptised Jesus. Jesus passes by. John points him out. And Andrew sort of breaks away from the John the Baptist crowd and runs after Jesus and says, you know, hey, I want to spend some time with you. Uh, And in the account in John, they spend the day with Jesus. uh, And Andrew introduces uh, Jesus to Peter. So there's an interaction. And certainly some commentators think that that sort of period of of being with Jesus, then went on for a, a period of time, days, weeks, possibly even um, some months. If you read Matthew just prior to the passage we've had, um, it actually suggests that Jesus then sort of went away on his own without Peter and Andrew and James and John and the others and was preaching um, on his own, and so that this is actually a point of reconnection. I think once you put it in that context, it seems a little bit less abrupt. And it's more like, oh, wow, yeah, JC, been waiting for you. Come on, boys, pack up the nets, off we go. And it's not like, oh, prophet suddenly appears, let's do something really weird and dramatic. So it's not clear from Matthew because he just gives it to us very straight. But when you put all the gospel accounts uh, in together, then it feels a little bit more as though this is a, a growing journey for Andrew. Uh, and for Peter and for James and John. And Luke 5, in fact, also embellishes on the story and explains that Jesus got into Peter's boat to preach to the crowd and then they went out on a fishing expedition and actually that was one of the instances when Jesus taught Peter how to fish and Peter was seriously impressed by Jesus' fishing ability and actually said, no, no, get away from me, uh, Lord, I'm, I'm a sinner. A little bit like the words of Isaiah. So I think it's important to, to understand that this is not a flash-in-the-pan thing. This is a growing relationship, a gr- gaining understanding between Peter and Andrew, James, John, and Jesus. They are learning about Jesus, who he is, what he stands for, and what he does. comes across to me you know the, the, the big question with all these things then is okay well you know so what interesting story Galilean fishermen not something we can really relate to very easily in modern day Sussex most of us are not fisher folk um, if we are we use a rod and a line and uh, spend ages getting bitten by mozzies and being frustrated and we're not doing it as our livelihood um, which is probably a good job for those of you who fish because you may not be that successful. So what does this this mean for us? Well, I think one of the key messages out of this and out of the passage in Isaiah is that we don't find God. God finds us. God is looking to reconnect with us. If you flip on to the next slide. God wants a relationship. Now, however you take the sort of creation story in Genesis, the message there is very, very clear, that there was a point where humanity's relationship with God was perfect. And now we're in a situation where it's not. And that's not how God wants it to be. God wants to restore that perfect relationship. He wants to reconnect with us. He wants to draw us back into that beautiful relationship. So he's searching for us. You'll remember in the Garden of Eden, it describes God walking in the garden. He's looking for Adam and Eve. They were hiding for, from him at that point, but he was looking for them. He was walking, looking for them. Jesus is walking on the beach. He's gone out intentionally to find Peter and Andrew, and James, and John. He's walking on the beach to find them. It's not a chance encounter. He's gone there to find them. And I think for us, I don't know where you are in your walk with God. You may feel that you're very, very close and very connected. You may feel very distant. You may feel that actually the whole idea of a walk with God is really rather alien, And that God is nowhere to be seen. Well, I would encourage you to trust the fact that God is there and he is searching for you. He wants a relationship. And I think the second thing that's really important, and Isaiah brings this out very clearly, is that God doesn't let our sins keep us separate. He doesn't let the damage in our hearts keep us separate. Think about the situation Pauline was talking about for a moment. The hatred, the understandable hatred and pain in the hearts of those people who'd seen things that most of us can't even imagine because we have never come anywhere close to that sort of pain and anguish and grief. That is justified hatred. If hatred could be justified the way they feel, is absolutely justified but yet it brings separation and that's that's how we are with god the way we are separates us from god it makes us want to hide it makes us want to stay distant god's not going to put up with that he's not going to let that situation persist like it said in isaiah isaiah realized in the presence of god just how flawed he was I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord Almighty. I've encountered God, and I am such a horrible pile of whatever, that I just, I just can't carry on existing. I am ruined. I'm destroyed by my encounter with God. And the angel comes to him and says, no, no, you're not. What you are, what you have done, the way you feel about yourself, that's actually been wiped clean. And there's that dramatic image of the hot coal searing his sin away. You've ever watched any of those sort of, you know, action things like Last Kingdom or all those sort of, you know, medieval series. Somebody gets injured and they usually get some hot iron implement and burn the wound and everybody goes... And that's the image in Isaiah, there's that searing hot coal on his lips, burning away the impurities, that dramatic. God is so determined to get to Isaiah that he's atoned, he's taken away, he's dealt with Isaiah's impurities. As I said in the encounter to the way it's described in Luke, Peter says, no, no, get away from me, I'm I'm a sinful man, I can't be with you. But Jesus says, "No, no, come on, come with me let's go and let's go and fish for people. God doesn't let us stay separate. And you'll remember that Paul writes that nothing can separate us from the love of God, nothing at all, nothing we can experience, nothing we can imagine, nothing we can write about or make films about. Nothing above the earth, on the earth, under the earth. There is nothing that can separate us from God's love. Because God's love depends on God. Not on us. It's not something in us that generates the love of God. It's the love of God that comes from God. So it is driven by an all-powerful, all-loving, all-compassionate being. It doesn't depend on us. So Jesus finds us. But, and there is a but, and it's a very important but. One of the core features of who we are and how the world is and how God relates to us is that we have choice. We can decide what to do. We can decide whether to be hurtful or whether to be wholesome. We can decide whether to be loving or unkind. We can decide to do when Jesus finds us. Think about what Isaiah did. Let's have a look at the next slide. Isaiah said, yeah, okay, here I am. Send me. That was a choice. God had got him to the state where he could make that choice freely. He was no longer unclean. He was no longer unacceptable. But that didn't mean he had no autonomy. That didn't mean he had no self-control. He hadn't been branded as a slave by God and captured. He'd been made pure. He'd been made whole. And he could have taken that purity and that wholeness and walked away from God. But he didn't. He made a choice. Here I am. Send me. Peter and Andrew left their nets and followed Jesus. And I thought that it's, a, it's an interesting analogy, isn't it? The nets. And again, thinking about what Pauline was saying about the, the, the hatred and the pain that was entrapping the people in that room. We all have nets. We all have the uh, things that entangle. Sometimes they're very obvious. It might be alcoholism or drug addiction or some sort of very obvious sort of psychological medical situation where we're trapped in something. It might be much more subtle. It might be comfort, it might be uh, the need for approval from others, might be all sorts of things. We have nets that trap us. And I think one of the things that God is saying to us when he encounters us is, I have made you clean, but you've got to let go of your nets. You've got to walk away from the things that are holding you back and follow me. There's a choice. It's interesting, if you read in John 6, there were lots of other people. So we've got four names in this particular account. If you read on in Matthew, a few more names come up. We know there were 12 or disciples. But there were lots of people at different points following Jesus. And John 6 gives us a rather sort of dramatic and painful account of Jesus feeding the 5,000, he's walking on water, extraordinary miracles, amazing things to see, such an amazing opportunity to believe. And then he starts to present the challenges of what it means to give up your nets, to try and disentangle you, yourself, from some of these other things. And then many of the disciples, the indication is actually most of the disciples, turned back and no longer followed him they were exercising their choice they had met God they had seen God in action God accepted them but they still could and in that case did turn away and abandon Jesus so we have a choice and I think it's important to understand that our choice is active and ever-present. Now, there are there are two sort of aspects to this, and I think it's very important to, to understand the both aspects. I was looking for a picture, I couldn't find one, but, you know, you see in this sort of, there's always a point in a lot of action movies where somebody falls off something and somebody else catches them. Now... Those of you who are parents and have ever tried to sort of, you know, lift a younger person up by one arm—one—it's not really a good idea because you might dislocate their shoulder—but it's also very difficult with a small child to do that. Um, if you try—if I was trying to do that with Carl right now, um, I can guarantee you he wouldn't survive the experience if he was the one being held. And I would prefer to take that as the alternative rather than have him holding me. The one being held would fall a long way and smash on the rocks below. But in the films. The superhero, or even just the mildly good hero, invariably has non-sweaty palms, a fantastic grip that doesn't break the wrist or the arm of the other person, and can then, just with their arm, lift them over the parapet and back onto the side of the cliff or the bridge or whatever it is. It's it's pretty standard fare. God can do that. God can do that. Because God is not a superhero. God is not a human. God is God and God always has us in his grip so he can do that but he will never pull us back up against our will so he has the ability always to catch us and hold us no matter what the circumstance so wherever you think you are To whatever extent you think you've deliberately run away from God and jumped over the cliff. If on the way down you shout, oh, major error, help. God will catch you. 100% guaranteed. But we always have that choice. And we exercise that choice every day and every moment of every day. Because we're not controlled by God we're in a relationship with God, so we have a choice. And I think the other thing that's important—we have a look at the next slide—is that there is cost. There is a cost. Carl mentioned this earlier. We've had examples talked about this morning. There is a cost, and I think it's very easy to think of the cost for us. And often, in sort of you know, when you're talking to people who are not Christians and and they're saying, yeah, but, you know, being, being a Christian is all about giving things up. You know, I can't do this and I can't do that. Well, one of the answers to that is, so, OK, so do you want to rape and steal and murder and, and all of those sorts of things? Because you can't do those, you're right. No, no I, don't, I don't want to do those. I just want an occasional drink. Um, OK, so we're, you know, we're, we're reducing the temperature. But we tend to think about it as a very, I can't, I, I, a prostitutes for me. If I follow God, the cost is for me. Well, it was for Peter. Peter gave up his nets to follow Jesus. But the real cost was for Jesus. To follow him, knowing that Peter would betray him in his hour of need. That they would build up this beautiful relationship. And then Peter would say, "No, I don't know that guy. Never seen him before in my life. You know, if you want to take him away and crucify him, you do that. Don't know. So there is a cost, but God has paid the big cost already. Jesus has paid the price. Isaiah could be told that his sins had been atoned for, they'd been paid, they'd been wiped away. So, yes, there's a cost, but actually, We don't pay the half of it. And where we end up is that we exchange selfishness for life in all its fullness. That's the beauty of what happens. In John 10, 10, Jesus said, I have come that may have life, and life to the full. So in many ways, for us, it's not really about giving up. It's about getting free. It's about getting more. It's about being whole. In John 4 it says, whoever drinks the water I give to them will never thirst. We have an unending resource, an unending source of grace and power and love. The water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That sounds fantastic. Who would not want that? So there's a cost. But the cost is not really borne by us. It's borne by God. There are consequences. We Have a look at the next slide. We can't stay as we are if we follow Jesus. We won't remain unchanged. Peter and Andrew stopped being fishers of fish and became fishers of people. Isaiah became the mouthpiece of God to the Israelites. He became a prophet, an extraordinary writer of truth for the Israelite nation. And the key thing really for for us is that not only will we be changed... But our relationship with others will be changed. Other people will see the difference in us. As it says in Matthew 5, so just a little bit later than the passage we were reading, Jesus says, Let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. There's going to be an impact. When we connect with God, there will be an impact we are called to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. and Pauline just so beautifully explained how difficult that really is. You might think that you just have to continue talking to your relative who thinks differently about Brexit than you, or about the election, or about a football team, or wants to cut the hedge on your boundary and you don't. But Pauline just illustrated it's so much deeper than that, isn't it? It's about really engaging with the people who have genuinely hurt or harmed us, whether it be our parents or a school teacher who abused us or or some other situation where we've been caused genuine harm. We're called to love those people. And Pauline illustrated as well, In a way, why God wants us to do that? Because He knows that that's the route to wholeness. But that, in a sense, is where we sort of don't have a have a choice. If we really engage with God, we will see these things happening. They will be consequences of our engagement with God. So, finally, just to close, how do we sort of take this forward? The most obvious thing to say is that Jesus is walking towards you and towards me. Every day, Jesus walks towards us. And what are we going to do? What's our choice? Because we can carry on fiddling with our nets. We can push the boat out and sail away from him. Or we can do something else. We can engage We can get out of the boat. We can put the nets aside. We can try and drop the things that entangle us and we can walk with Jesus. So just a few questions, really, for you to ponder over the coming week. What are the things that entangle you and what would it look like to step away from? Soon I were on a a coaching course uh, over the last sort of uh, three days in the middle of the week. Um, As some of you may know, I've changed jobs recently and my my new role is a sort of internal coaching role. So I'm interacting with people on a one-on-one basis. I'm trying to uh, help them sort of improve their performance. Um, And I got very excited about this coaching concept and Dragged Sue into it. I think it will fit her sort of skills, natural abilities, even better than it, it does mine. I have to work quite hard at it. She just seems to just do it very naturally. Um, so if anybody if you want to sort of put your hands up to be a guinea pig, then Sue is looking for guinea pigs. But the interesting thing about the coaching course is that it, they spend it. It's quite it's quite Christian actually. It's really weird. It's run by a secular organisation, um, but it has a spiritual dimension to it. And one of the things that struck me about this is that it's impossible to think about this stuff without getting spiritual because it's not just about things and sort of economics and 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 food and basic needs it's 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 bigger than that we can't engage with God without getting spiritual we can't actually engage with life and other people without getting spiritual, so in a sense from might as well involve God in it, because then it's a good spirituality, and it will actually produce good outcomes for us. So what would, what are the things that entangle you? What would it look like to step away from them? How would it be if we did actually love God with all of our mind, body, and soul? A lot of chat at the moment in sort of society generally about this. Mind, body and soul and mindfulness and, you know, becoming whole people. Okay, well, if you want to be a whole person, what does it look like if you take your whole person and direct your whole person to God? What happens when God directs his whole person to you? Because that is what happens. God doesn't just pay partial attention to each one of us. God is focused, laser sharp, just on you and on me and what actually practically could we do to love our neighbours and our enemies as ourselves how does that really look who are the people who irritate you let's not think about enemies most of us don't have enemies who are the people who just mildly wind you up who are the relatives you just prefer not to talk to so what would we do to love our neighbours and those who irritate us? What would that actually look like? So I'd encourage you just to take those away over the course of the week and, and have a have a go at doing some of this. One of the um, one of the interesting things we learned on the coaching course is. If you, uh, if you really want to actually sort of you know, make something happen, generally speaking, you have to tell somebody else that you're going to do it and give them permission to ask you if you've done it. And it's okay if you haven't, because it's not about sort of, you know, condemnation or holding you to account or anything. But if you want to do something, then it frequently helps to actually tell somebody else. So maybe that's something you could do with one or, or several of those is think about it what are you actually going to do talk to somebody else about it and give yourself a week maybe, a few days to just in a very small way see if you can actually engage God with you in doing this let's pray Father God we are so grateful that you walk along the beach to us Lord, we're so grateful that you help us out of the boat and encourage us to drop the nets and walk with you in a different direction. Father God, we pray that you will do that for us and with us every day in the coming week and that we will see real change in ourselves and in the lives of those around us as a result. In Jesus' name we ask it, because we know that his death has made all of this life, in all its fullness, open to us. Thank you, Lord. Amen.